Chapter Seven of Jenny Gerhardt by Theodore Dreiser. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Gerhardt was in despair. He did not know anyone to whom he could appeal between the hours of two and nine o'clock in the morning. He went back to talk with his wife and then to his post of duty. What was to be done? He could think of only one friend who was able or possibly willing to do anything. This was the glass manufacturer, Hammond, but he was not in the city. Gerhardt did not know this, however. When nine o'clock came, he went alone to the court, for it was thought advisable that the others should stay away. Mrs. Gerhardt was to hear immediately what happened. He would come right back. When Sebastian was lined up inside the dock, he had to wait a long time, for there were several prisoners ahead of him. Finally, his name was called, and the boy was pushed forward to the bar. "'Stealing coal, your honor, and resisting arrest,' explained the officer who had arrested him. The magistrate looked at Sebastian closely. He was unfavorably impressed by the lad's scratched and wounded face. "'Well, young man,' he said, what have you to say for yourself? How did you get your black eye? Sebastian looked at the judge, but did not answer. I arrested him, said the detective. He was on one of the company's cars. He tried to break away from me, and when I held him, he assaulted me. This man here was a witness, he added, turning to the railroad hand who had helped him. Is that where he struck you? asked the court observing the detective's swollen jaw. "'Yes, sir,' he returned, glad of the opportunity to be further revenged. "'If you please,' put in Gerhardt, leaning forward, "'he is my boy. He was sent to get the coal. He—' "'We don't mind what they pick up around the yard,' interrupted the detective, "'but he was throwing it off the cars to a half a dozen others. "'Can't you earn enough to keep from taking coal off the cars?' asked the court. But before either father or son had time to answer, he added, "'What is your business?' "'Car builder,' said Sebastian. "'And what do you do?' he questioned, addressing Gerhardt. "'I'm a watchman at Miller's Furniture Factory.' "'Hm,' said the court, feeling that Sebastian's attitude remained sullen and contentious. "'Well, this young man might be let off on the coal-stealing charge.' but he seems to be somewhat too free with his fists. Columbus is altogether too rich in that sort of thing. Ten dollars. If you please, began Gerhardt, but the court officer was already pushing him away. I don't want to hear any more about it, said the judge. He's stubborn, anyhow. What's the next case? Gerhardt made his way over to his boy, abashed and yet very glad it was no worse. Somehow he thought he could raise the money. Sebastian looked at him solicitously as he came forward. "'It's all right,' said Bath soothingly. "'He didn't give me half a chance to say anything.' "'I'm only glad it wasn't more,' said Gerhardt nervously. "'We will try and get the money.' Going home to his wife, Gerhardt informed the troubled household of the result. Mrs. Gerhardt stood white and yet relieved, for ten dollars seemed something that might be had. Jenny heard the whole story with open mouth and wide eyes. 
It was a terrible blow to her. Poor Bass, he was always so lively and good-natured. It seemed awful that he should be in jail. Gerhardt went hurriedly to Hammond's fine residence, but he was not in the city. He thought then of a lawyer by the name of Jenkins, who he knew in a casual way. But Jenkins was not at his office. There were several grocers and coal merchants whom he knew well enough, but he owed them money. Pastor Wundt might have let him have it, but the agony such a disclosure to that worthy would entail held him back. He did call on one or two acquaintances, but these, surprised at the unusual and peculiar request, excused themselves. At four o'clock he returned home weary and exhausted. "'I don't know what to do,' he said despairingly. "'If I could only think!' Jenny thought of Brander, but the situation had not accentuated her desperation to the point where she could brave her father's opposition and this terrible insult to the senator, so keenly remembered, to go and ask. Her watch had been pawned a second time, and she had no other means of obtaining money. The family council lasted until half-past ten, but still there was nothing decided. Mrs. Gerhardt persistently and monotonously turned one hand over in the other and stared at the floor. Gerhardt ran his hand through his reddish-brown hair distractedly. "'It's no use,' he said at last. "'I can't think of anything.' "'Go to bed, Jenny,' said her mother solicitously. "'Get the others to go.' There's no use there sitting up. I may think of something. You go to bed. Jenny went to her room, but the very thought of repose was insupportable. She had read in the paper, shortly after her father's quarrel with the senator, that the latter had departed for Washington. There had been no notice of his return. Still, he might be in the city. She stood before a short, narrow mirror that surmounted a shabby bureau, thinking. Her sister Veronica, with whom she slept, was already composing herself to dreams. Finally, a grim resolution fixed itself in her consciousness. She would go and see Senator Brander. If he were in town, he would help Bass. Why shouldn't she? He loved her. He had asked her over and over to marry her. Why should she not go and ask him for help? She hesitated a little while, then hearing Veronica breathing regularly, she put on her hat and jacket and noiselessly opened the door into the sitting-room to see if anyone were stirring. There was no sound save that of Gerhardt rocking nervously to and fro in the kitchen. There was no light save that from her own small room lamp and a gleam from under the kitchen door. She turned and blew the former out, then slipped quietly to the front door, opened it, and stepped out into the night. A waning moon was shining, and a hushed sense of growing life filled the air, for it was nearing spring again. As Jenny hurried along the shadowy streets, the arc light had not yet been invented, she had a sinking sense of fear. What was this rash thing she was about to do? How would the senator receive her? What would he think? She stood stock still, wavering and doubtful. Then, the recollection of Bass in his night cell came over her again, and she hurried on. The character of the Capitol Hotel was such 
that it was not difficult for a woman to find ingress through the ladies' entrance to the various floors of the hotel at any hour of the night. The hotel, not unlike many others of the time, was in no sense loosely conducted, but its method of supervision in places was lax. Any person could enter, and, by applying at a rear entrance to the lobby, gain the attention of the clerk. Otherwise, not much notice was taken of those who came and went. When she came to the door, it was dark, save for a low light burning in the entryway. The distance to the senator's room was only a short way along the hall of the second floor. She hurried up the steps, nervous and pale, but giving no other outward sign of the storm that was surging within her. When she came to his familiar door, she paused. She feared that she might not find him in his room. She trembled again to think that he might be there. A light shone through the transom, and summoning all her courage, she knocked. A man coughed and bestirred himself. His surprise as he opened the door knew no bounds. Why, Jenny, he exclaimed, how delightful. I was thinking of you. Come in, come in. He welcomed her with an eager embrace. I was coming to see you. Believe me, I was. I was thinking all along how I could straighten this matter out. And now you come. But what's the trouble? He held her at arm's length and studied her distressed face. The fresh beauty of her seemed to him like cut lilies wet with dew. He felt a great surge of tenderness. I have something to ask you, she at last brought herself to say. My brother is in jail. We need ten dollars to get him out, and I didn't know where else to go. My poor child, he said, chafing her hands, where else should you go? Haven't I told you always to come to me? Don't you know, Jenny, I would do anything in the world for you? Yes, she gasped. Well, then don't worry about that any more. But won't fate ever cease striking at you, poor child? How did your brother come to get in jail? They caught him throwing coal down from the cars, she replied. Ah, he replied. His sympathies touched and awakened. Here was this boy arrested and fined for what fate was practically driving him to do. Here was this girl pleading with him at night in his room for what to her was a great necessity, ten dollars, to him a mere nothing. I will arrange about your brother, he said quickly. Don't worry. I can get him out in half an hour. You sit here now and be comfortable until I return. He waved her to his easy chair beside a large lamp and hurried out of the room. Brander knew the sheriff, who had personal supervision of the county jail. He knew the judge, who had administered the fine. It was but a five minutes' task to write a note to the judge, asking him to revoke the fine for the sake of the boy's character, and send it by a messenger to his home. Another ten minutes' task to go personally to the jail and ask his friend the sheriff to release the boy then and there. Here is the money, he said. If the fine is revoked, you can return it to me. Let him go now. The sheriff was only too glad to comply. He hastened below to personally supervise the task, and Bass, a very much astonished boy, was set free. No explanations were vouchsafed him. 
That's all right now, said the turnkey. You're at liberty. Run along home, and don't let them catch you at anything like that again. Bass went on his way, wondering, and the ex-senator returned to his hotel, trying to decide how this delicate situation should be handled. Obviously, Jenny had not told her father of her mission. She had come as a last resource. She was now waiting for him in his room. There are crises in all men's lives when they waver between the strict fulfillment of justice and duty and the great possibilities for personal happiness which another line of conduct seems to assure. And the dividing line is not always marked and clear. He knew that the issue of taking her, even as his wife, was made difficult by the senseless opposition of her father. The opinion of the world brought up still another complication. Supposing he should take her openly, what would the world say? She was a significant type emotionally, that he knew. There was something there, artistically, temperamentally, which was far and beyond the keenest suspicion of the herd. He did not know himself quite what it was, but he felt a largeness of feeling, not altogether squared with intellect, or perhaps better yet, experience, which was worthy of any man's desire. This remarkable girl, he thought, seeing her clearly in his mind's eye. Meditating as to what he should do, he returned to his hotel and the room. As he entered, he was struck anew with her beauty and with the irresistible appeal of her personality. In the glow of the shaded lamp, she seemed a figure of marvelous potentiality. Well, he said, endeavoring to appear calm, I have looked after your brother. He is out. She rose. Oh, she exclaimed, clasping her hands and stretching her arms out toward him. There were tears of gratefulness in her eyes. He saw them and stepped closer to her. Jenny, for heaven's sakes, don't cry, he entreated. You angel, you sister of mercy, to think you should have to add tears to your other sacrifices. He drew her to him, and then all the caution of years deserted him. There was a sense both of need and of fulfillment in his mood. At last, in spite of other losses, fate had brought him what he most desired, love, a woman whom he could love. He took her in his arms and kissed her again and again. The English Jeffreys has told us that it requires a hundred and fifty years to make a perfect maiden. From all enchanted things of earth and air, this preciousness has been drawn. From the south wind that breathed a century and a half over the green wheat, from the perfume of the growing grasses waving over heavy-laden clover and laughing Veronica, hiding the green finches, baffling the bee, from rose-lined hedge, woodbine, and cornflower, azure blue, where yellowing wheat stalks crowd up under the shadow of green firs, all the devious brooklet's sweetness, where the iris stays the sunlight, all the wild woods hold of beauty, all the broad hills of thyme and freedom thrice a hundred years repeated, a hundred years of cowslips, bluebells, violets, purple spring and golden autumn, sunshine, shower, and dewy mornings, the night immortal, 
all the rhythm of time unrolling, a chronicle unwritten, and past all power of writing. Who shall preserve a record of the petals that fell from the rose a century ago? The swallows to the housetops three hundred times. Think of that. Thence she sprang, and the world yearns toward her beauty as to flowers that are past. The loveliness of seventeen is centuries old. That is why passion is almost sad. If you have understood and appreciated the beauty of harebells three hundred times repeated, if the quality of the roses, of the music, of the ruddy mornings and evenings of the world has ever touched your heart, if all beauty were passing, and you were given these things to hold in your arms before the world slipped away, would you give them up? End of chapter 7